you know, the thing we say in gaming communities, we call them weebs. You know, if you're a weeb, mm-hmm. you, know, yeah. you know about weebs. You're probably a bit yeah, of a yeah. weeb yourself. Um, <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to Glasshouse Games, and this is the first episode of Second Takes, where we're going to be diving back into themes from previous episodes with the help of experts. Uh, I like to think you're an expert, Oleg. Uh, we have uh, Oleg <laughs> Benesh here. Did I say that right? Am I? Yeah, that's good enough. I've been called far worse. Come on, I have I have a long name too, and people mess it up. How should I say it? <laughs> oh, that's that's fine. Oleg Benesh okay. sounds good. Oleg Benesh, yeah. uh, you are a scholar at the University of York, correct? Mm-hmm. And uh, today, what I wanted to bring Oleg on for is to discuss more of the themes that we talked about in our Ghost of Tsushima episode, because uh, Oleg is a, a scholar of Japanese history and has a really fascinating book that we used in our discussion called, if I can find it, Inventing the Way of the Samurai, Nationalism, Internationalism, and Bushido in Modern Japan. A, a, a wonderful, like, three-part academic title. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so I, I, there's a lot we want to talk about today. Um, I thought before we got started, um, I could give you a chance to maybe speak a little bit uh, about yourself and about your work, how you came to this kind of scholarship, and then then I can pummel you with questions. <laughs> no, thanks. And yeah, thanks for, for the invitation. Um, yeah, I've, um, I guess I've been probably working on Bushido for about, 20 years now um and that kind of has a lot to do with where i i guess come from as an academic as well um i mean i'm i'm originally from alaska i kind of grew up there and you know went to the university of alaska studied actually kind of philosophy kind of uh east asian and um western philosophy Mencius, um, that kind of thing um yeah yeah no, exactly and I, I mean and um one of the things i kind of came across there um at that time um, were some of the writings on what's known as uh, the Hagakure, which is kind of this early 18th century text um, about written by um, a samurai or dictated by a samurai and is, is kind of seen as one of the, the kind of key texts in what later becomes known as, as Bushido. Um, I read quite a few kind of comic books growing up as well. Um, there's kind of this whole um, series of Usagi Yojimbo. I don't know if you've, you've ever yeah. come across this. It's, it's the guy who um Stan Sakai who was kind of writing in parallel with a lot of the, the Ninja Turtle things at okay. the time. And so these are just kind of some of the things I came across from my my childhood. And then um I moved to Japan um in two thousand. Um just wanted to study the language and kind of do something different, I suppose. And around that time as well I I watched um Jim Jarmusch's film Ghost Dog. Okay. Um, you know, with uh Forrest That's Whitaker. It. And then it was of... all that was it. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, cause cause he's he's then reading this this um Hagakure book that um uh, and kind of living according to this. You know, he's a modern day mafia hitman, but he's living according to this samurai code. And so that kind of got me more interested in uh, what's going on here. Um and then reading some of the I guess what's kind of the classical text on Bushido, um, Nitobe Inazo's book, you know, Bushido, the soul of Japan, reading that, um, and then thinking, yeah, uh, what's going on here? And, that, and that's where I then I went and uh, did a master's degree in Japan um, to kind of look more into this. Um, and then I went, uh, moved to um, Vancouver um, and did a PhD there, still working on Bushido, and then just kind of continued on living in um, in Japan and um, Canada and 
now the UK and just kind of continually working on, on Bushido until kind of, well, the book then came out in 2014. Um, but I still do quite a bit of work with it. And, and I'm, I guess I'm most interested in, um, kind of the global dynamics of, of Bushido, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what happens to Bushido in China, um, and really exploring it further in terms of, you know, um, what are the influences on it from other countries and what are the Japanese influences then um, to other countries? Because it's, I'm more and more kind of convinced that it, it is part of this really global discourse on, you know, what we call medievalism, you know, the uses of the medieval symbols and um, ideas after the medieval period has ended. And I think Bushido is really just a part of this in the late 19th century i mean we talk about like the victorian chivalric revival in this country mm-hmm. um the u.s is is undergoing exactly the same sort of thing germany is um you know a lot of europe is and um so is japan yeah. and so they're very much kind of in tune with a lot of the things going on with kind of chivalry and knighthood in europe mm. um are kind of being echoed in japan so to speak i think that's um, and that's kind of where i'm at now that, that's a really that's one of the reasons i was originally actually drawn to your work when i watched some other interviews and sort of read summaries of your book because i think whenever we get into conversations about historical depictions or realism and things like that there's always i i always have this crusade that like we there's a kind of a double game that's always played and we we talked about it in this episode if if you criticize a, a work depicting history for being unrealistic people will say well it's just a movie right but then mm. if you ask the same people why they prefer that movie over you know a more fantastical one or maybe if they even if they like those as well but generally speaking i'll say oh because it's so it feels so realistic it feels so real so you can kind of you can play both sides of the fence and i think what's interesting about this game is that it as a as an art piece or as an object as a piece of media it is this very mm-hmm. advanced and very well made and very well curated kind of whole and it has this uh, i think appearance it gestures towards this historical reality but you know for us you know at the, on the show and i think uh, maybe for yourself as well it's the kind of thing where when you start to scratch beneath the surface it very quickly kind of falls apart and i think that framework of medievalism is interesting because some of what I, from the little bit I was able to read of your work and from, you know, hearing you speak, the, the idea of medievalism, you know, rather than saying, okay, so there's this eternal thing called Bushido or called the samurai code or just samurai as this like spiritual ideal and it existed through history and it is culminated now in this present moment and people like to remember it because it's fun to think about. It's sort of a, there's a specific moment that it emerges onto the world stage and it is used for you know, political purposes. And to do my bit of show and tell today, I was thinking mm. of, um, I was thinking of the two books, actually. Um, one is as a pretty famous one you might have come across is The Invention of Tradition, uh, Hobbes mm-hmm. Bomb. And mm-hmm. the, you know, one of the theses of that book is like, you know, a lot of what we call tradition is are, are things that were invented in the modern era. And there's another book that I'm actually, I'm going to say that also, it'll be my secret for later. Um, <laughs> that is, I think, also relevant to this conversation. But what I'm what I'm getting at is, um, you know, th- so this game I'm I'm going to quickly summarize the pl- major plot points, and then I thought maybe we could delve into it a little bit. So, this game supposedly takes place in the 13th century, around the late, uh, so it's 1274 ish. That's when the Mongol invasion, led by one, let's see, Kotun Khan, okay, uh, comes to the shores and starts to uh, you know eviscerate and destroy the Japanese countryside. Um, the game is framed around main character his name is Jin Sakai and he's from this Sakai clan 
And very quickly, him and all of his comrades are destroyed and killed, and he manages to survive. And sort of the theme of the game is being this lone samurai, struggling with the destruction of your people and your homeland, and you're trying to sort of save them by sometimes having to make very un-samurai-like decisions. So you're not always honorable, and you might have to sneak up and kill people from behind and you know do things that are supposedly against the Bushido Code. Uh, so, you know, that's, there's a lot there to unpack, but I thought maybe mm-hmm. one way we could start is is sort of from what you talk about in your book uh, is is the, the, the historical samurai and sort of where our modern image of them comes from. And then this this thing of the, the Bushido code and how it was codified. Mm. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, there's so many layers here. I mean, as as you imply, and, and you know, we we kind of recognize this. And I mean, the game is quite interesting because um, if you touched on, but they, you know, they claim to be quite heavily inspired by you know the film director Kurosawa Akira, mm-hmm. you know, who's quite famous in the, um, especially from the 1950s, 1960s, um, and you know, globally famous. And it's interesting because you know Kurosawa's samurai that he kind of creates in a lot of ways are also a response to what's going on before his time um, and we really just have these layers upon layers and, and when we look at something like this game it, it, it's quite interesting that they chose this period of kind of the mongol invasions um in a way it's it's a lot earlier than most of the things that we look at when it comes to kind of like samurai popular culture um it's an incredibly important event and in and that's uh, certainly at the time, but also for later Japanese history in in several different ways. But what it it also kind of means is that we have kind of a a compression and kind of conflating of a lot of different bits of history, because you end up with this kind of uniform view of of what a samurai is that we have in the game, which is actually kind of bringing things together that are going all the way back, things that were kind of created in the 20th century, um, all the way back to, you know, we're in the 13th century, and just saying, well, we have this one uniform idea of what a samurai is, um, and the virtues that are along with that, um, some of the outfits and things, I think that that go along, go along with that as well. Um, and so I guess that's, that kind of anachronism in it is probably one of the, the kind of... Um, kind of strange things about it because I think a lot of the things um, I mean fundamentally I guess one of the the issues we have with um, so much of popular culture around the samurai and um, especially when people start bringing in the idea of Bushido is that the kind of the high point of the samurai um, when they're kind of these warriors that we all imagine is the period before kind of the 1600 mm. um, and then after 1600, we have 250 years of effectively peace under the Tokugawa shogunate. And that's when people actually start um, thinking about what it means to be a samurai and start writing about it. And this is when we have some of the, the actual things that are kind of codified that are later kind of um, reinterpreted as, as Bushido. So there's, there's a period where the samurai actually warriors um, but they aren't really what we would call samurai mm. now. And then there's a period later where they are what we would call samurai. They're a distinct class, but they're not actually warriors anymore. And I mean, one one kind of minor thing there is probably if in the 13th century um, you had called anyone a samurai, that's probably a pretty good way to get yourself in a fight because <laughs> um, they certainly wouldn't have referred to themselves that way. I mean, it's it's it 
it literally means servant. Right. Okay. Um, you know, they would have seen themselves as as, as warriors, if anything. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to note that these are really fluid distinctions yeah. until we get into the late 16th century. So that was um, that. That was one of my questions. Is sort of, um, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of of Kurosawa, like first of all, those kind of depictions, even even Kurosawa's depictions, are are often not very flattering of the samurai. So you have a kind of like mm-hmm. a depiction of them as this difficult, intense class with, with lots of conflicts. But when you go into the history, I, I was curious, maybe again, for your, for your perspective, that it seemed to me that there's a lot of the history of what ended up becoming the samurai class was not one of sort of like unity and loyalty, but of like intense factionalism, of infighting, of, of even like, as Kurosawa sometimes depicts in his movies of like, you know, peasants being afraid of them, not necessarily always, you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to go to this samurai for help because they're going to defend me. But thinking, oh, crap, the samurai are here. Hide your hide your China, hide your, you know, your good your good pots and pans and stuff. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I think most peasants would have just tried to steer as far clears as they could from them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's the thing. It's it's the period which i mean comes after this but is kind of known as the warring states period which kind of ends in the late 16th century where we do have all this upheaval and kind of jockeying for power between all these different warlords and factions and that's often known as the period of of like the lower the lower overcoming the higher mm-hmm. um because you know you have someone who you know is a ruler of a huge part of japan and then gets toppled by the next group to come through and then gets toppled by the next group and you have large temple com- buddhist temple complexes that have huge armies that are also kind of vying mm. for power here and it's it's and if we if we talk about these kind of ideals of loyalty that are kind of brought up later um that's not really something we see at the time i mean some medieval historians make comparison between like you know professional athletes that you know they're going to be kissing the badge while they're playing for that team yeah. but as soon as a better contract comes elsewhere you know they're gonna they're gonna be off <laughs> they're, um, they're contracted by another team yeah yeah and, and i mean you get these stories of, of families like you know when there is a, a war starting then hey you know put, you put one son on each army um, wow. of the opposite sides because that way at the end of it um, you know, you're not going to lose all your land. Yeah, you're guaranteed something. Yeah, you got to hedge your bets. Wow, um, and and if we look at it, I mean, the the major battles, I mean, including like the battle, um, probably the most famous battle in 1600, the Battle of Sekigahara, where the Tokugawa shogunate then finally unifies Japan effectively mm-hmm. and and is in charge for the next 260 years. Um, you know, that is decided by an act of treachery, essentially. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially one of the major warlords um, who has his army just on on the side of the battle and is then instructed to come in and on the the side of um, what are the western armies um actually comes in and, and attacks the western armies rather than being on their side he should have been on their side the whole time but um we don't exactly know what was going on but it's pretty likely that he just saw the way the battle was yeah. going and said actually i'm gonna go fight for the eastern side because you know i'm it, it's not going well for the West. Um, and so that sort of switching of sides is just part and parcel mm. of that entire I, I like the idea that the founding moment of, of the, the 200 years peace is, is, is something that kind of <laughs> violates the fundamental tenets of the, of the Bushido code as, as it was imagined. And maybe, so I think that's kind of, for me, the, the interesting direction to go in is sort of, there's, there's a historical samurai, there's this incredibly diverse, complicated conflicts and ideas and ideologies it doesn't seem to me um so there was an interesting thing that you said uh in one of your i think it was a, an interview on another channel where you said usually when you hear this kind of uh, i think it's the do 
uh, added on to the end mm-hmm. of something, it's usually a kind of modern ideology. And I, I found an article, I don't know if you're aware of him, uh, G. Cameron Hurst is his name. He, mm-hmm. he wrote yeah. uh, Death, this article, Death, Honor, Loyalty, and the Bushido Ideal. And he has an interesting mm-hmm. anecdote where uh, he talks about um, uh, Nitobe and he says that, uh, so there, there are some kind of random sort of accidental examples of, of the word Bushido existing in history, but that mm-hmm. Nitobe actually thought he was inventing a word when he when he did mm-hmm. it so so to kind of highlight how not relevant it was to like japanese cultural consciousness he was thinking i'm going in here and i'm actually going to create a whole new concept and it was only years later when someone was like you know that like it's not what you're saying but this th- this is in this like 14th century text here he was like really oh crap <laughs> but uh yeah so i guess what mm. the, the direction I'm, I'm trying to think of going in is there's the historical samurai but then there's also mm-hmm there's a very specific moment in like Japanese modern imperial history when all this stuff starts to become prominent. And my amateur reading from what I could tell is it seems like it was very part and parcel with the rise of this kind of like Japanese nationalism, a a sense Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, like you said, like this medievalism, that's almost like trying to be in conversation with Western imperialisms and colonialisms and say, you know, we're, we're just as chivalrous. Look, we have our own tradition of chivalry and, you know, we are going to be the custodians of this East Asian co-prosperity sphere, whatever it ends up becoming. So see, this is why we have our own ideals and you have like, you know, Roosevelt reading the Bushido book and, and stuff like that. So I wonder if, if you would be able to talk a little bit about that moment of like what mm-hmm. Nitobe was kind of uh, interested in when he wrote this, this famous text and also just this movement that was happening at that time to push for these like ideas of a traditional Japan. Like what was it mm-hmm. mobilized for? Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a really good question, and I mean, it's 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 great you bring up uh, Hearst. I mean, he's one of the top kind of historians of medieval Japan, and does excellent work. And we've we've got a um, some people. Um, there's another excellent historian, uh, Carl Friday, who's kind of written on this. He's a medieval historian who who writes an article titled Bushido or Bull, um, which which is I think around 1990 or so. It's, I think it's freely available available online it. if people want to find it. But it it's very good. Um, and one thing though is the um, there's a bit of a disconnect that we find where a lot of this comes from about which is between kind of medieval historians and then kind of modern historians where as as you say the word bushido is not widely used before really the 1890s mm. so you know in in the 1890s nito Inazo um can still think that he's making this word up mm. i mean it does appear in, in a smattering of texts yeah. from like the 17th 18th century but it's not it's not really used widely even within those texts. But you have a situation where you have scholars like Hearst, um, these great medieval historians, um, also a lot of the Japanese medieval historians, who see all this stuff about Bushido um, in the last hundred years and um, say, you know, this doesn't exist in my period. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sitting here looking at the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. It's not there. Mm. Um, and then I look at the modern period and suddenly it, it's it's everywhere in the early 20th century. Oh, and we've got Nito Beinazo, and they tend to kind of credit him with 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 kickstarting this whole thing, mm. um, which he he does in English right. in a lot of ways. I mean, he writes his book in English originally, um, which is impo- important to note. So the medieval historians tend to say, oh, it's a modern invention, which is correct, mm. and then they they kind of just attribute it to Nito Beinazo because you know they don't tend to work on the modern period. In contrast, the modern historians then they will often um take bushido a bit more at face value mm-hmm. 
because they don't know the pre-modern history, they will tend to say, oh, well, this is something ancient. It's always been there. And in the modern period, maybe it gets corrupted and it changes a bit, but it's always been there. So the modernists are a bit, le a bit more hesitant to kind of look at that earlier period. And, and so I guess where I kind of came from when I started working on this, um, I was kind of looking at the late medieval period because I was looking for this because this is where a lot of people said it started. And I, you know, I'm going through the 17th century, going through the text, then through the 18th century, and I'm not finding it. You know, I'm looking for this thing where people said it should be, and it's not there. And then finally, in the late 19th century, it's like, oh, here it is. It's everywhere. Um, and so I kind of had to work my way up from the late medieval up into the modern period. To, and then what I try to do effectively is, is demonstrate, you know, how it comes about. There's some other thinkers in kind of late 1880s, early 1890s. Um, where what you have after um, we have this this moment called the Meiji Restoration in 1868, where the Tokugawa Shogunate is finally overthrown, we have a new um, the Meiji Emperor comes into power. We have a new imperial government, um, which lasts until 1945. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the first things the new imperial government does is you know it's really pushing to modernize, which at that point means you know Westernization. They're bringing in advisors from Europe, from North America. They create a new imperial army. Um, and they're also at the same time trying to get rid of all the the old, mm -hmm. like all these so feudal things that they had before. Um, you know, they tear down all their castles. They essentially kind of disband the samurai. They get rid of their stipends. Um, they're no longer allowed to wear swords. Mm -hmm. And so there's this huge kind of anti-samurai sentiment wow. in the 1870s. Yeah. And... And there's this big rebellion in 1877 um, called the Satsuma Rebellion. This is what's fictionalized in the the Last Samurai. Okay. Um, which so you know it, it's this this last stand of the samurai. The reality is is quite different. Yeah. Um, but we can really see that moment as kind of the end of the samurai, so to speak. And so, you know, the samurai are just a, a massive pain. You know, before 18, 1868, you know, they are about probably six seven percent of the population. Most people just see them as, you know, generally something you want to stay away from. Um, you know, they're they're so a lot of people see them as parasites. They're like um, a bureaucratic you know, class, right? Or... Yeah, most of them are bureaucrats. Yeah. Insofar as they have jobs, that's the other yeah. thing. Um, many of them are actually underemployed or unemployed. Right. Don't actually have stipends. Um, some of them kind of fall out and start farming and doing other things. And you know, it, it it's not a great existence. And then they become a, a real pain once you know, they're, they're kind of abolished because they don't really have any other skills, mm. so to speak. And so you're, you're there in this, this period of modernization in the 1870s, and you've got all these, these samurai um, who have now lost their stipends and are, are often kind of being a pain, and, and we have this rebellion yeah. and things going on as well. And so after this, this kind of really big kind of backlash against the samurai um, and aspects of a lot of the traditional culture, um, with a lot more of the interactions kind of with Europe and um, especially in the 1880s we have a lot more Japanese traveling to the west but we also have a lot more westerners traveling to Japan and becoming interested in, in aspects of the traditional culture and you know if if, uh, if for example you are traveling um, from Japan you're a diplomat let's say um, and you go to um, London 
in the 1880s. I mean, you're now traveling to the capital of, you know, the British Empire. It's the most powerful empire in the world. It's the most technologically advanced. I mean, it is kind of the center of power. And, you know, you arrive there and you're a diplomat. You go visit the queen and, you know, she's in a medieval castle. Mm. And, you know, you visit the Tower of London. A lot of diplomats were taken to that. And you start seeing all of this, you know, kind of often reconstructed or certainly embellished medieval heritage um, that the English are really celebrating and the Germans are doing the same thing. And so are a lot of Europeans. And there's this kind of idea, oh, wait, you know, this this stuff is actually quite important, you know, to kind of have this idea of of a national heritage when we are trying to construct a nation. We think of Japan as, as having been around for millennia, but really, you know, the, the modern nation of Japan kind of comes into being in 1868. Um, and, you know, that's about the same time that, you know, the modern nations of Germany, Italy, you know, really come into being as well, a lot of European states. And Japan is undergoing exactly these same processes of kind of finding um, what it means to be a nation and trying to create a national character and, and kind of discover that. And so what you have is, is a very clear movement around um, 1890, where you have a few theorists who are saying, well, actually, um, th who are buying into this Victorian ideal of kind of chivalric, um, chivalry and gentlemanship. And, you know, the, the Victorians are saying, well, you know, actually, the, the modern gentleman is the source of the, the strength of the British Empire, and our gentlemanship can be traced all the way back to medieval knighthood. And, you know, for it's for good reasons, uh, these Japanese thinkers are encountering this are saying, oh, well, yeah, that it's the most powerful empire in the world. They're saying this. OK, that must be something to it. Um, and they're saying, but we need an equivalent. You know, if they're tracing their gentlemanship back to a medieval knighthood, then, well, we kind of had a medieval knighthood as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to create kind of a Japanese gentlemanship for the modern period kind of based on that and and we'll call it yeah the way of of the warrior and and just about anything that has this 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 door this kind of way in it is something that's usually created in the late 19th century and that applies to a lot of the martial arts things like judo um kendo mm. um you know even you know so many of these like um kind of the way of archery all of these things are kind of um late 19th century when it's also trying to kind of add a slightly more mystic element to these things, which had before just kind of been like skills or, you know, like um, some kind of martial talent. And so, so it, this starts building up in the early 1890s. And then in the mid 1890s, we have kind of what's known as the first Sino-Japanese war where Japan um, defeats China. And that really acts to kind of bring the nation together kind of rally everyone behind what's also kind of a, a martial cause yeah. and a military engagement. And that's where this this martial ethic of Bushido starts getting really picked up, starts becoming popular. And that's where the Nito Inozo okay. um, also writes kind of in that sense. Um, it's important to note that, you know, he's he's writing in English. He's, he's actually living in California at the time. Um, and I mean, he's, he's married to an American. Yeah. Um, some people say that she actually had a pretty big hand in, in writing a lot of this. Um, but certainly he knew a lot more about Western culture than he didn't know about Japanese culture. And he's essentially writing this to explain to Americans, especially that, um, Hey, Japan isn't, isn't weird. It's yeah. just like, like the West. Um, we've also, you know, we don't have Christianity, but we have our own kind of ethic. Well, he was um, Christian, right? He was, he was yeah. Christian. I think that's an interesting um, angle as well, because 
there's mm-hmm. this sort of we tend I think we tend to think of uh, empire and violence and all this stuff and because it's been it's been very one-sided in history we tend to think of it as like mostly coming from particular places but there's a really interesting um i was listening there's a podcast i always mention uh, beyond huaxia by professor justin mm-hmm. jacobs and he, it's Ch- history of china and japan and in that you know he's he's sort of talking about how and i think sort of what you're hitting on that like you know, if you look at different colonialisms, different empires, you know, the French and the British and the Americans and all the Germans, like they all did Belgians, they all did it differently. They don't all do it mm-hmm. exactly the same. And there's something interesting about the early, late 18, uh, 19th century, early 20th century with Japan as a rising imperial formation where it's it's both responding to what I what I again in my amateur reading, it seems like uh racism towards asians and japanese people in the west so you have lots mm-hmm. of that in the u.s you have the uh, exclusion acts in in america in the mm-hmm. early 1900s and also within its own context you know becoming this massive like nation state entity and so it's able to kind of use this rhetoric that that is kind of appealing to some people even in in like southeast asia of saying you know once once you get to like the early pre world war 2 period of saying like we are going to save you from from the whites like w- because not mm-hmm. implausibly like they were going around and destroying society you know the west western societies were colonizing and killing lots of people mm-hmm. so there's this weird there's almost this like um versus a kind of purely uh racial hierarchical discourse the way we understand it in the west of like white supremacy and like you know these people are inferior in these ways i think you still see that um there's like the whole yamato race stuff that like they talk about but there's much more this idea of like we're the we're going to create this benevolent egalitarian society uh you know there's the one of the things i love in the justin jacobs podcast he talks about like the manchukuo propaganda stuff where it's like oh five races under one union this is like the future and stuff so again the the, the reason for this tangent that i'm thinking of is when when you deal with like media that is problematic or inaccurate or whatever you, you always get you you hit a a point where it's like the 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 inner consumerist in all of us kind of reacts because mm-hmm. because you know life is hard and you want to have fun so you you want to play the game you don't want people to tell you that the game is bad but and i think what kind of where i'm coming from and where i think our discussion in the show is coming from was it's not that you know playing Ghost of Tsushima makes you a, a a Japanese like colonialist from the 1930s or something. It's more where do these narratives come from, and and what kind of pernicious ideas could they end up reinforcing? Mm-hmm. So like the same way that I think we're it's I think it's fairly non-controversial. People might be upset by it, but I think it's fairly non-controversial to say something like cowboys and Indians. You know the whole Western genre it has these like problematic foundations. I think people are somewhat aware in popular culture that, okay, this is a really fantasized version of what happened. It's probably a bit racist and whatnot, but I think the samurai thing, it, it, it still gets a lot of a big pass, you know? And I think that's because maybe a lack of awareness about the history. I think, you know, and and it's interesting because the way you framed it of like, you know, there it's, it's a modern thing looking back into this history saying, you know, we have this chivalric past and so we are just as good and all that. But it, it's interesting because it almost combined with like being, you know, this game being a modern uh, thing, like you get this seemingly ancient thing that looks like whose whose internal logic looks very modern, you know, so that you have this game where the Mongols are like, it, it reads like a, I don't know, to me, it reads like a, 
a typical Western racist thing from like the 1930s, almost <laughs> like here's the evil barbarian hordes. Here they come, you know, like there's the noble violence that we have. And then there's the, the, the unhinged violence of the others. Like it, it's, it's, it's evoking this tradition while at the same time being very modern. So uh, apologies for my, <laughs> my rambling here, but there's, no. there's something about mm. that. Like it's, the reason I think it's harmful is less because, like, you know, something's going to happen because you play a game and more because, mm. of, you know, there's a very specific imperial history that ends up into World War II that, you know, leads into eventual like war crimes. And, you know, the whole way people rationalize these events mm -hmm. in Manchukuo and Nanjing and the Yasukuni War Shrine and all this stuff. It's not just samurai, obviously, but one mm -hmm. pillar of that is this idea of like the nobility of our history and if that remains untouched, I yeah. question if if you can really critic criticize it or critique it. Yeah, no, that's, that's um. So, I mean, I think what what you're alluding to here, which is certainly the case. I mean, this is incredibly complex. Yeah. A lot of this, and you know, the way these things kind of arise and then how they're interpreted later are often two very very different things, and and that adds adds this complexity. And um, I mean, I guess before. Kind of talking about maybe a bit more about the samurai heritage and what goes on in the 20th century with that. I mean, it it's just the the notion of taking the Mongol invasions yeah. kind of as the event, um, because I mean the Mongol invasions. I, I think some of the discussion around this game has been about how um, you know this game has has been seen as kind of nationalistic by yeah. many people. Many of the things it's got in it. Um, I think I, I can't think of any historians who would think that Japan has any sort of kind of nationalism at the time of those invasions. Yeah. I mean, you might have a tiny little elite who might have this concept of, of Japan in their minds, mm. but it, it's certainly not that. And I mean, the peasants wouldn't have cared, you know, who, who kind of runs um, the world around them, who they're paying their taxes to. Mm. Um, but the Mongol invasions do later become very significant symbolically. Um, there's a lot of debate about, you know, there's this idea that, um, they the Mongols were finally destroyed by a great typhoon, which is known as the Divine Wind. Okay. Um, Divine Wind um, is then brought up again in the 1850s and 1860s. The idea that you know maybe a Divine Wind will come and destroy the Americans um, and and wash away the foreigners at that point. Um, and then we see this idea of Divine Wind again used in the 1940s, actually, because Divine Wind literally translated as Kamikaze. Ah, interesting. And so that's what they named the the, the uh, special attack corps after in the Second World War is after the divine wind that supposedly destroyed um, the Mongol fleets. I mean, historians now debate whether there ever was really a typhoon, and uh, some historians argue that actually the Japanese were perfectly um, able to look after themselves, mm. um, and it was very difficult for the Mongols to actually logistically manage the invasion, and that supposedly the scale has been completely overestimated. There's a lot of debate still on this this topic, but the Mongol invasion itself, because it's really the only time um, until you know the U.S. occupation in 1945, mm. it's the only time in that millennium essentially that Japan um, is actually invaded, um, and so you know the the fact that they chose that as their event is interesting because the only actually other major military encounter Japan has um, before the 20th century um, or before the 1890s um, with the continent um, is actually Japan's invasions of Korea in the 1590s, uh, which are, I mean, devastating. They're, they're essentially trying to invade China, ultimately conquer China, yeah. supposedly is one of the goals. Um, but, 
you know, they lay waste to the Korean Peninsula. There are a lot of atrocities in that period. And this is a very contentious issue today still. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's no, I, I don't think there's any way you could really make a video game based yeah. around that <laughs> in, in Japan. Whereas the Mongol invasions are that much further off. Right. They're um, removed. You know, yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of distant and, and, you know, you aren't going to have as many controversial issues there um and you can you can maybe take a few more liberties i guess with how you how you depict yeah. the mongols as, as you said um and and in terms of, of when we get into and now when we kind of look back and, and we're talking about kind of the samurai and we're talking about this image um and and i mean bushido specifically and we look at a lot of the problematic aspects of it his of its of its history and how it was used in the 20th century i mean that is a that is a big issue and um personally i mean what i also try to do in the book is i try to pick it apart a bit because now we we just talk about generally people talk about bushido and i mean i actually argue that, that we have quite a, a few different bushidos okay. that we're looking at and they're all they're often very very different so I, I know some of the some of the writing on on this game people have picked up the idea that oh nitobe inazo you know, his his bushido then was was taken and mm-hmm. and used, um, you know, in in the 1930s and 1940s by the military. And actually, I mean, it's it's quite different. I mean, as I mentioned, we have this very kind of almost internationalist bushido um, that kind of comes out of this kind of global medievalism. These currents that I was mentioning in the 1890s, um, but that gets rejected by about 1900 within Japan. Um, a lot of more nationalistic scholars who are really dominant and especially have a lot of influence in the government um they don't like these aspects of it um that it, it's too kind of pro-western um and they want to f- have something much more japanese and they end up creating what i call um imperial bushido um which is about 1901 that this really starts picking up and this introduces the figure of the emperor okay. um it focuses very much on on imperial loyalty um it is ends up being kind of reconstructed by selecting very carefully selecting certain key texts from the pre-modern period um and you know for example they they carefully take parts just parts of the hagakure like about oh the way of the warrior is found in death right. um it's it's all Isn't focused that, on that loyalty sh- is it shinigurui or something that like concept yeah, exactly. of like yeah you know, like losing death, yourself madness. in death or something yeah Kind of like the berserker yeah, yeah. Uh, mentality, yeah. And so these are the things that they 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 kind of carefully select to create this kind of um, very nationalistic um, interpretation of bushido, which then goes into the military education system. It goes into the the civilian education system. And when we talk about kind of like the when we like the the real imperial ideology at that time. Um, that Bushido is part of that. But we also have this other, you know, kind of more internationalist Bushido. It, it doesn't disappear. It just kind of gets ignored. But then in, in um, this kind of imperial Bushido, which is, is very closely tied to what happens in the 1930s and 1940s um, in, the, in the war in China, the invasion of China, um, also the war against the United States, that imperial Bushido is effectively um, discredited in 1945. Yeah. Um, and that is rejected. And that's what we kind of see with a lot of Kurosawa's films as well, I think, um, because he wants to get away from this this kind of idealistic mm-hmm. view. And his samurai are much more complex characters right. um, that you wouldn't really have had to that same extent before. Right. Um, I mean, it's 
but that imperial bushido is then is then gone but what people then do is like okay well that was the corruption of bushido um in the 1950s they're saying that was a corruption of bushido now we need to just get rid of that and we need to find out you know what was the real bushido we need yeah. to go back and try to discover it and so you get historians you get um artists you get you know playwrights you get everyone kind of now looking back at the pre-modern period to find the real bushido it's like you get and, zatoichi and stuff <laughs> yeah you get you get zatoichi and things like this coming up who's, who's, who's yeah obviously not even a samurai yeah. <laughs> um but the interesting thing and, and what i think is, is kind of problematic in all of this is that you know i mean bushido is effectively an invention of the 1890s mm-hmm. but people in the 1950s and beyond are like okay well we need to find real bushido and they have it in mind that this thing exists and then start jumping back to, to earlier texts to try to find it and that's the thing if you have in your mind the idea that this thing exists then you can find things to support that even if it doesn't actually exist you know, exist you know so you know to someone with a hammer you know yeah, everything, everything looks like a nail <laughs> everything looks like a nail um and so i think that's then what happens um after 1945 and you know nito Beinozo's bushido which actually was generally ignored in japan um when it was published um, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, I think, yeah. you know, he, he he buys 50 copies of the book, supposedly, and hands them out to all his friends. It's a huge bestseller worldwide. The Rough um, Riders, is that get... the right time? Is that... Yeah, that's just, <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. it's a funny, it's an ironic image of thinking of like the true Bushido code being <laughs> wielded by the yeah. Rough Riders. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt also, you know, he practiced judo and all sorts of yeah. sorts of other things. Um, but the thing is, Nitobe's Bushido, it, it it's not popular in Japan because it, it isn't this kind of imperial version that's now dominating in Japan in the early 1900s. Um, you know, it is too kind of internationalist, and it's also quite, you know, ahistorical in a lot of ways. And the few Japanese scholars who read his book in English, I mean, they absolutely slam it. Yeah. They say this is nonsense, yeah. um, and it's, it's you know, West, it's, it's you know, it's, it's West worship, yeah. and, you know, yeah, we don't need any of this. It's too, it's too Christian. Um, and so they... It, it's pretty much ignored in Japan. I mean, there's only uh, the first translation, I think, comes out eight years later, like into Japanese. So interesting. And and it's not properly translated until the 1930s. History's awesome, by... man. That's, this is why it's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but but then Nito Bay comes onto the um, he really comes onto the scene in the 1980s because now you know Japan is um, you know we've got the economic miracle, um, Japan is booming, and people are starting to look for you know, kind of cultural explanations for, you know, Japanese economic success. Um, and in 1984, Nitobe Inozo, um, his face appears on the 5,000 yen note. Mm. And the first thing is everyone is like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, no one's ever heard of him. Um, and I mean, some people don't know how to pronounce his name and they look into it and then, you know, people rediscover his yeah. book. And, you know, this the 1980s, it's, it is a period of internationalism. You know, Japan is very strongly allied with the U.S. Yeah. in the Cold War. Um, and suddenly there's Bushido everywhere again. Um, you know, Tom Cruise supposedly read, I think, I think he claimed in an interview once to have read, um, Nitobe's book like seven times. Did, did it lead him to Scientology, for the last samurai. I suppose? <laughs> it it <laughs> might have done. It led him to the, it led him to the last samurai, yeah. certainly. Um, but, but now when we look into Bushido, you know, that's, that's kind of the dominant one, which is more pacifistic, right. more internationalist. But I, I, I would just qualify this by saying that that imperial Bushido is also still around. Do, would you think that, you know, my, my cynical mindset, I, I almost, the way you're describing it, it's interesting, but I, I wonder, would, would you think it's possible that 
you know, that the pacifistic Bushido in a way kind of relies on the specter of the imperial Bushido, like in, in terms of, um, you know, it, it can kind of scrub it clean a little bit. Like to me, it, it, again, if we go to like the example of the Western or, um, you know, even chivalric knights or whatever, like you can kind of, mm -hmm. you can scrub it clean and you can kind of say, okay, no, this isn't about the crusades and it's not about, you know, warring kingdoms. It's not about expelling the Muslims from Spain in 1492 or so, you know, it's none of these things. Mm -hmm. It's about honor and th and you can do that. But I, mm -hmm. I wonder if the traces are so sort of still there in the sense of like, you know, one thing that, uh, to me, the kind of a uh, instant reaction when, again, when you critique this game for its narrative as people say, well, look, like it's so popular in Japan though. So like the very people, this was made by a Western studio about Japan. So mm -hmm. it's being received well by the culture that it's about. So that should tell you all you need to know. But I think the, for me, what's interesting is again, just, just from what I can tell in the sources and, and reading the materials, like it doesn't surprise me that it's popular in Japan because, because also, you know, nationalism is is popular in most countries you know like and there's mm -hmm. a whole movement you know there's a whole conservative movement in japan to to reclaim that history and to, to say no you know japan mm -hmm. did nothing wrong like we have a noble history you have you know the the, the continued issues with different prime ministers visiting the, the 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 shrines of like you know alleged war criminals and stuff like that and i wonder you know just to say well it's popular in in japan that's fine it, it to me it almost strikes me like you know you could have a call of duty game made in japan about the west and then released in the west and say well you know they love it so like you know that should show you that we, we did a good job but i think it would be very trivial or easy for us to say well yeah but like you know if this is this military triumphalist thing about you know landing in afghanistan and liberating everyone you know whatever you are on the political spectrum i think it would be pretty obvious that that was that was that's what it's tapping into you know so um mm. i guess that's my question is do you see e even though it's presented as this pacifist thing is is it possible that there's this um you know for some people or maybe for a lot of people that it it kind of feeds into those narratives of like you know the, the greatness of the country the greatness of its past uh you know even the, the game itself mm. You know, I don't. I don't think anyone's going to go out and kill some Mongols personally, but its its depiction of them is very, I don't know, troubling. Like a uh, very mm -hmm. simplistic. You know, so do do you think it could feed into some of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I can. I mean, it's, it's always difficult to say, you know, why exactly, yeah. you know, people are going to be interested yeah. in in it and playing it, and it's, you know, because some people like, you know, they might like the Kurosawa aesthetic. Yeah. Um, they might like like those aspects of it, and, um, in. I think a lot of people will recognize aspects of it. I mean, for example, The Last Samurai, you know, that was incredibly popular yeah. in Japan. That's another example. You know, that was made by, you know, a, a Hollywood studio. Yeah. You know, we've got Tom Cruise in the, the lead role. And, you know, it's incredibly popular in Japan, even though it's, you know, very um, ahistorical mm. in a lot of ways. Um, and and as, as I mentioned, because Bushido does have all these, these different angles. I mean, some people, um, you know, will be identifying cultural things yeah. that, you know, for them are not, are not connected with the modern period at mm. all. Um, and, you know, there are probably, you know, there, there are ways people are just playing it for the gameplay, yeah, for but, the aesthetics. Yeah, I beat the game. And, I 100%ed I the game. Uh, so I, you know, no. I, I, I'm making all these critiques and I still beat it. Yeah. <laughs> Last thing, I'll, I'll, I'll have to work up to that. But yeah, but the, um, it's certainly the, the other extremes still exist. I mean, as, as I mentioned now, like kind of Nito Bay's more kind of internationalist, pacifistic Bushido mm. tends to, be the main thing um but this kind of imperial bushido does still very strongly exist on on the right um and you know a lot of actually the kind of spiritual education texts is what they were called in the 1930s um that were used for military and civilian education um 
a lot of these have been reissued in the in the last 20 30 years um and just to, so just to clarify were those uh, were those also reissued in the the war period so like was that was that something that soldiers or like people would be inculcated with or or did that kind of yeah so yeah. so i mean the hagakure is a good example yeah. this early 17th century early 18th century yeah. text sorry which um wasn't actually published so to speak until the 20th century mm. it just kind of existed in kind of manuscript form it was only published in the early 20th century you know a carefully edited version of that was given to troops right. okay. um, in the early 1940s um very carefully edited um but you know these some of these texts that were written in the 1930s about this very militaristic view of bushido these have been kind of reissued without commentary now okay. you know in the in the early 2000s, um, just kind of as is. And, you know, those, those are the things that, you know, I'd find quite problematic. And so, you know, I, I think there are, there are more and less problematic ways to kind of play a game like this yeah. and, and engage with this and, and to be watching certain things and, and where people are coming from is really going to inform that. And, and for example, one of the, I mean, I, I guess there's, there's two things I want to, to touch on here. One of them was, um, I think the comparison you make with, kind of the crusades is, is a very interesting one and you know a lot of people would most people i think would try to you know sanitize that it's like okay we'll have all these these nice bits about nice knighthood and chivalry um which are you know this one type of fantasy but we're going to get rid of all this problematic mm -hmm. stuff in a sense it's it's easy it's easier to do that with bushido i mean this is also what i argue in the book is because you know the term isn't really used before the 1890s so you can you can kind of do with it what you want in yeah. a way um because people people can't in the same way say, oh, well, you know, what you're saying is Bushido isn't because, you know, this is what Bushido was in, in the 14th century. And it's like, well, it wasn't yeah. there, so you can't say either way. Um, but I think the, the the kind of big example where this still has a lot of influence is actually in China. Right. Okay. Um, and and I've, I've written an article on this because I, when I was working on Bushido, um, one of the things I noticed is that almost the most discussion of, of the concept now um, after Japan is in China um, since the 1990s, because I mean, as, as most people know, China and Japan have a few um, conflicts ongoing over kind of historical yeah. issues. Um, and you read quite a bit of the, the scholarship in um, China that's written on um, Japan and on Bushido. And a lot of it does kind of um, go back to this imperial Bushido view yeah. that, you know, Japan is a martial country. Um, and that they would invade China again if given the right. chance, and um, you know it's it's very it's it's really focused on those aspects of it, which I think in the West we really in the U.S. and the U.K. for example we really had in like the 1930s and 1940s. Yeah. If you look at a lot of the the kind of quite racist writing that was being done in um, in English language in the 30s and 40s, you know, a lot of that sees the Japanese as being these kind of Bushido-driven automatons. Right. But interestingly, which... that's kind of why I asked the question about, uh, like, you know, is there traces of things in our modern discourse? Because I think, I think it was in the Cameron Hurst, the G. Cameron Hurst uh, article, where he he, mm -hmm. he starts it by saying, if I ask a student, what would you say are the, like the defining ca characteristics of Japanese culture? you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to say honor and loyalty or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way in which like the long, let's say there's a fancy academic term for this long durée, something like that, that, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the effect of these things over the centuries, is like, you know, we have this whole conception of that, that I think because it implants itself in common sense, it almost makes it like 
very, very difficult to imagine things any other way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even like I myself, I grew up watching anime, you know, I love my Final Fantasy mm -hmm. games. Like I, I love all of this stuff, you know, but uh, there's like you're saying, there's a sort of greater to a lesser extent, of like how problematic is it to engage with it as a consumer? But I think even, you know, for me, one of the reasons I want to have this conversation isn't because I think I'm like, you know, the I have my finger on the pulse and everyone's going to listen to me, but more because it's for creators as well. Like, you know, it, 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 like I think you're right that it's almost an impossible task. Like if you're trying to do what this game is trying to do, a, a like woke or a more accurate version of it doesn't really make sense because it just wouldn't be what it is. It would be something completely different. Mm. But then that does, uh, I'm going to misuse this term, beg the question, I think, of like, mm -hmm. you know, what, so if that's the case, then what would it look like? kind of game or what kind of story would we be telling if we were trying to capture something about these incredibly complicated different movements and the, the violences that they're part of and convincing the west and the mm. west looking back on japan all that i mean you might have to it might be more experimental to be honest or in the case of cinema mm -hmm. you know like kurosawa comes in and you know that we, we joked in the review that like this game has a kurosawa mode but the only thing it takes from kurosawa is like the the most pithy kind of like base aesthetic choices of like it's great it's black mm -hmm. and white but like nothing of the, I, I personally don't know. I don't know what a game that tries to interrogate these things would look like. I think a lot of it would probably be frustrating for the average player because it would be about taking away a lot of the power fantasies and control that you have. Because because in these games you have to have mm -hmm. some kind of unless you're unless you're playing like a you know a, a nice family game. There's there's got to be things that you're hitting and killing endlessly. So like at mm -hmm. some point it's going to interact with these racial ideologies and these. You know, you have to be good. Even if you're an anti-hero, you kind of, you have to be a good guy. So, yeah. So anyway, I just, that's kind of what I'm thinking of. Even even though it's, we're kind of past that moment mm. of the fully imperial Bushido, those ideas, mm. they, they did a good job, man. Like they, they, they mm -hmm. kind of permanently affected the global discourse around yeah, that country. And, yeah. And um, I mean, it's, that's, it's a really important point. Um, and when we look at yeah, kind of the uh, the longer heritage, how long it takes for these ideas to often kind of come in. Sometimes they go quite quickly, yeah. but then um, I mean their 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 impact lasts quite a long time. And actually, I mean one of the things that that I've been thinking about a lot um, in over the last few months is kind of in the context of this the the whole pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, if we if a lot of the reporting, I mean, Japan so far, I mean, case numbers are going up a bit, but, you know, it's no, it's no comparison with Europe right. or the Americas. Um, and, you know, Japan hasn't had a lockdown. Japan hasn't right. done a lot of things. Um, it's mainly been down to um, kind of what people's choices have been. The government has put out some guidance, certainly. Right. Um, they sent everyone, you know, a mask. Um, but generally, people have been kind of doing their own thing. And, and you look at a, a lot of the the kind of discourse around this in the West and, um, a lot of it is like, oh, that's because you know the, the Japanese have such a high degree of collectivism um, and lack of individualism, yeah. and yeah, homogenous society, and so much of the stuff is put in these cultural frames. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, it's really interesting. It, it, I mean, I've done a fair bit of work on this in the late nineteenth century, when kind of from the West, this idea of um, the concept of individualism 
um, which is actually fairly new in the West in the 19th century mm. as well. But when that like kind of comes into Japan as something like kind of like, oh, here's this idea of individualism. It's really interesting how the Japanese um, thinkers at that time are kind of engaging with it. That it's not simply that oh the West has this thing of individualism um, and you know we must be the opposite. It's no, it's it's like well actually um, the issue is the Japanese are too individualistic. Mm. Um, that you know this is why you know the West has has trains and Japan would never be able to deal with trains because you know Westerners you know they take care of of public property and they wouldn't they wouldn't destroy things whereas japanese you know would we're doing we're something on my brain we would <laughs> yeah we we would we people would destroy them they would write graffiti on them um some of the examples they give are you know the reason the west is so successful in the late 19th century is because westerners cooperate and have this collective spirit and if we look at sports for example at that point you know we have baseball we have rugby mm -hmm. we have um football soccer coming into japan and they're saying see the Jap the, the westerners you know, they play these collective sports to train kind of the collective spirit mm. and they work together. And then when it comes to kind of national projects or the military, they're incredibly effective because they all work together so well. Whereas, you know, we Japanese, we're too individualistic. You know, we do we do kendo and judo and all these individual sports and we don't have this this kind of way of working together. And so you get all of these debates about like, well, is individualism, is it Western or is it more Japanese? Is it a good thing? Is it a mm. bad thing? But it, it's heavily contested. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, whereas now you read all the discourse about, you know, COVID-19 measures and everyone says, oh, well, you know, Japan's doing fine because, you know, they're all collectivist yeah. and, and they don't mind, you know, everyone wearing a mask for everyone else. I think it also, um, but that I mean, would never work not, here. not to completely go off the rails, but I think it also erases, like you're saying, like these things are all contested spaces and there's a whole... I mean, there's a rich history of like social movements and like resistance and all kinds mm -hmm. of like, uh, you know, transgressive art and political things in Japan that it kind of all gets smothered under this idea of like, oh, well, you know, people in Japan just they do whatever their government tells them because that's kind of how it's always been. That's that's the success of Japanese society. But kind of like you said, like one of the things that the the Justin Jacobs podcast opened my eyes to was mm -hmm. like we said that uh, you know the Japanese nation state doesn't really come into being until like the 19th late 19th century early 20th mm -hmm. century there's things that even like we think of as like okay Japan is these islands right here but like there's the Ryuk the Ryukyu kingdom and the Okinawa mm -hmm. and Sakhalin island and all these places that like at if history had gone a slightly different way we might think of it slightly differently <laughs> you know there might be different groups of people who got absorbed or even Taiwan like he does mm -hmm. a whole series on how you know, in Korea and Taiwan, like people specifically, was it was mm -hmm. Taiwan or Korea? I can't remember which one I'm thinking of where they'd been colonized for so long that when they're kind of removed from the orbit of the Japanese empire, there's almost, there's like this, there's people who are happy, but there's also this like people who are so almost assimilated that they're like, wait, what? I've been learning Japanese all this time. And like my children speak mm. Japanese and we play baseball and like Japanese teams. And all of a sudden we're not part mm -hmm. of this imperial formation. So like, that idea of this the mm. homogeneity, the Yamato race stuff, like I think we do ourselves a disservice. That's what it's it, that's what it is for me. That's the whole reason mm -hmm. I wanted to have this conversation. At the end of the day, <laughs> you know, you can go and you can like you can have a drink or you can do some drugs or you can play a game and you can just enjoy it. And there's I don't think we can judge people for that. But mm -hmm. what I what I take issue with is when we have we take this pretensions that it's something higher than that or that it's you know mm -hmm. this game which is this caricature of these different things is actually really deeply historically researched and very like mm -hmm. profound and i'm like well maybe if if that's what we're thinking 
I, I, my sense is we all need to go back to school. <laughs> we need to go to a class <laughs> of yours, maybe. <laughs> and... <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, that's one thing they could, you know, they could add to the game. They could have the dimension of like, you know, Jin having to deal with like a, a peasant revolt Against at the himself. same time that he's trying to do all this other stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, they do have these kinds know, of things, but they're mostly depicted like. Oh, there's this rebellion in the past towards our clan, and they kind of don't like us, but we'll bring them on board. You know, we're all yeah. we're all holding hands by the end of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, one of the things which I mean, you you allude to here, which is important to note, is like you know the his, historical dynamics um, we talked about a bit earlier. You know, Japan is very much in kind of the system of you know all these. Um, especially European empires. It's kind of the non-European empire yeah. that kind of comes and joins um, the crowd um, in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And if we look at, you know, what happens in the Japanese empire and these discourses of imperialism and then kind of decolonization yeah. afterward, um, we have a lot of very similar things. And, and we have these complications of, um, I mean, you mentioned um, Taiwan and Korea that, you know, the Japanese empire um, ends, so to speak, but, you know, some people say, well, that's where the um, American empire yeah. begins because, you know, South Korea, Taiwan mm -hmm. are then um, – the Philippines are then, you know, in, in the U.S. Right, orbit, right. so to speak, in the Cold right. War. Um, and so these these are incredibly kind of complex dynamics. But certainly if, we've, if we look at Japan's uh, modern history and in the post-war, I mean, the scale of many of the protests like against the U.S. alliance yeah. – um, in, in the 1960s, or kind the of the student protests in, in 1968, the anti-base movements, yeah. which are ongoing. I mean, the protests against um, um, Fukushima as well and, and kind of the government's handling of that. Um, yeah, it's um, certainly, um, there's a very, very rich kind of tradition of protest, yeah. um, which, you know, is, is kind of lost in, in a lot of the discourses about yeah. um uh, yeah, it's just kind of about collectivism and, and people well, just kind of do as as they're well, told. One thing I, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a big uh, fan of like you know state formations and authoritarianism and stuff. But I always find it it's an interesting historical or modern fact that like the the Japanese Communist Party is like the biggest non ruling Communist Party in the world, right? Like it's and it has mm. its own. You know, I I, I don't want to speak on that history because I don't know it. But like I know I know it's probably involved in like the power structures in in a very profound way. But just we don't we do ourselves a disservice when we conceive of Japanese society as this unified thing and I think that this mm -hmm. is just another example of that I, I did want to bring up mm -hmm. my this is my second show and tell is uh yeah one of the things that helped me kind of on this journey with like stuff with Japan because I grew up you know the thing we say in gaming communities we call them weebs you know if you're a weeb mm -hmm. you know yeah. you know about weebs you're probably a bit yeah, of yeah. a weeb yourself um, <laughs> you know when you grow up when you're a weeb you know you just you, you're interested in this thing you want to learn anytime you learn a language a culture you think it's great and you want to learn more about it and stuff but uh, you know I did a little bit uh, like I'm, I'm always an amateur in these things but I did a little bit of like post-colonial studies and stuff in school mm -hmm. and we read a bit of Charles Mills who wrote the racial contract and his whole project mm -hmm. was like critiquing John Rawls and all this like legal scholarship stuff. But he had this thing in the racial contract where he kept saying, he always talks about white supremacy and racism in the world, but he talks about it and he says this, this, and this, except for Japan and this, 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 except for Japan. And I was, as a young student, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what is except for Japan? And he actually mm -hmm. came to our school and he gave a lecture and I asked him, I was like, what is this except for Japan thing? And he's like, oh, well, you know, it has it because it was kind of like the one major kind of like modern non-Western imperial thing. It, it has a different history. And he recommended a book to me that I, I think is mm -hmm. a great book that uh, kind of uh, is similar in this conversation that we're having called Drawing the Global Color Line. 
here. Um, it's mm. by some Australian academics, but um, mm-hmm. it's drawing the global color line, white men's countries and the international challenge of racial equality. But kind of the mm-hmm. thesis that it's the reason they wrote it was kind of it's it's about you know racism and white supremacy, but they, they, they were frustrated with lots of national based studies where they're like, we look mm-hmm. at racism in the US and racism in America and Britain and racism in France. And, you know, they, they kind of neglect these international dynamics. And it's a really I mean, it's again, as a non expert, mm-hmm. to me, it's a compelling thesis. <laughs> Maybe you would be able to know mm-hmm. better. But with the mm-hmm. with this, they kind of say that you know, the growth of white supremacy wasn't this isolated thing. It was all these countries, Australia and Mm -hmm. Britain and America, kind of like in conversation with each other and articulating the sense of themselves as, oh, we are these white nations and these are the responsibilities of white nations and this is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. Even modeling, you know, oh, this policy in South Africa, we can do this here or this policy in Australia or the Exclusion Act. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that uh, over Mm -hmm. here. So, Similarly, what I hear from what you're saying, I'm I'm trying very hard to bring this home in a sense that what I'm hearing from what you were saying in our whole conversation is like there is Bushido in Japan and we can look at the samurai as a class and, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. There's a lot to learn there. But even more than that, like it would be helpful to us or it's we probably need to reinsert these mm-hmm. narratives into like global histories because they kind of only mm-hmm. make sense in that context. So you know, like in uh, Nitobe um, Inazo, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really make sense to him to talk about him as though he's this Japanese writer who just wrote this book and it had this effect. He's, mm-hmm. he's a Christian man who's living in the West and he's in conversation with these British diplomats and this sort of bureaucratic colonial culture. And mm-hmm. all of these things are constantly playing into each other. And to me, uh, this is my pitch, folks. It, it mm-hmm. pushes us <laughs> into a much more interesting space when we can talk mm-hmm. about it on this level with this framework of like let's let's move past the you know is it okay or not to play this game or like is it is it realistic or not i think we can accept that it probably isn't but what how can we learn from these things to do better you know and mm-hmm. it's, i don't know it's it's a really big challenge but maybe maybe we yeah, can no, be part th- of changing that <laughs> no that's I, I mean that's that's an excellent point i think by you know, actually looking at these things in in their context and um, seeing where they take us, um, I think it's it's really interesting. And because you mentioned Nitobe, I mean, it's it's one thing if we read if we read his Bushido, the Soul of Japan, as um, you know, this is a treatise on the samurai. Um, to be honest, that's really not going to get us very far. I mean, it it doesn't yeah. really say that much about the samurai. It's 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 pretty problematic that way but if we look at nito bay and the conditions under which he wrote it you know as you say you know he's a quaker um he's living in california at the time he's essentially educated um in um the west largely but then even um because you 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 mentioned um kind of these issues of of racism racial equality i mean nito bay inozo is is most famous in the early 20th century not for the book bushido actually but he's the undersecretary of the league of nations okay um, that forms in you know, 1919 after the First World War at Versailles. Um, and he is incredibly influential as that. And Japan is very much a part of the League of Nations project um, until they leave it in, in the 1930s. Um, but one of the things Japan does, and this is something if, if people want to look into this further, in, in 1919 at Versailles, um, as part of the League of Nations um, kind of, um, I guess, it's not constitution, but kind of the, the oh, charter yeah. of the League of Nations. Um, Japan tries to bring in a racial equality proposal. They want there to be kind of essentially a, a clause on racial equality 
um, at the, in the League of Nations, and that that should be at the heart of it. And it's interesting because in when the United Nations is set up after the Second World War, this idea of racial equality is very much at the heart of the United Nations project. That um, you know, everyone, all people are are should be equal. The League of Nations um, ends up actually rejecting the Japanese proposal. Was it Woodrow um, Wilson a, or one of these guys vetoed it? <laughs> well, actually, it's 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 mainly driven by the Australians. Ah. Um, and and this is this is one thing. It's um, as as you kind of insinuate this with this idea of the kind of global color line. I mean, and uh, scholars, I think, uh, is it Eric Lee? I'm trying to remember the name. I've recently read an article. It's excellent. She talked about kind of the transnational construction of anti-Asian racism yeah. and how anti-Chinese, um, anti-Japanese racism in the Americas, in um, Europe, in Australia, kind of all fed off one yeah. another, and kind of you know essentially led to the a lot of these kind of racist yeah. ideas being spread around the world. And then the racial equality clause essentially kind of fails um, largely due to Australian opposition, which is at that point one of the dominions of the British Empire. And so the British Empire um, decides not to vote. They abstain from the vote because they don't want to upset the dominions. Huh. And whereas a majority support the idea of racial yeah. equality um, at the League of Nations, um, Woodrow Wilson effectively at that point says, oh, well, it needs to be um, unanimous. We can't just have a majority vote like we did with everything else. This is too important. It has to be unanimous. And the whole thing falls apart. Do you know what, years, it fails. what year that was around? So this is 1919. Okay. Is this, is this um, before? And, is this, have, have the Japanese started the Manchukuo kind of railway stuff yet? Or is that a little bit later? Um, well, so the, the most of the Manchurian, Manchurian is 1931. Okay, so um, they are involved in China at this point already. They have they took over the German possessions in right. China okay. during the First World War. I mean, the, the, there's a massive crackdown um, on Korean independence movements right. against Japanese colonial rule in 1919. I'm just thinking in, in my head that the, the, the duality, it's such an interesting like image of like, mm -hmm. on the one hand, well, introducing this racial equality clause at the same time as like, well, suppressing, is, you know. This is precisely... The issue, and um, Naoko Shimazu, who's written kind of the, the the big book on this, I mean, she makes clear that, you know, this is not really a, a kind of happy, yeah. um, uplifting story on any yeah. side, because while the Japanese are, are putting forward this idea of racial equality, they don't expect this to apply to Koreans yeah. or Taiwanese, yeah. because they're very clear this is this is for nations. Exactly. And, and so these are nations that could be part of the the League of yeah. Nations, which, you know, Korea cannot, you know, it, it's a colony, right. you know, the Okinawans would also not qualify. And, and so, yeah, it, it, I mean, no one comes out of this looking, um, looking great. Um, but, it, but it does speak to these, these real complexities, because, you know, Japan, one of Japan's motivations for this is that, you know, the US has these exclusion acts, yeah. as you mentioned, you know, it, it's very clearly um, racist against um, Japanese yeah. and doesn't allow them to, to immigrate. Um, it's very clearly racist against China as well. And so, you know, it's it's an it's incredibly complex. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Japan isn't necessarily trying to, you know, liberate <laughs> all of Asia in that way. Even though that's, that's what we get from people on on the far right in yeah. Japan after 1945, saying, "Oh, well, this was actually all done for Asian liberation." Right. So it sounds to um, me like we, what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to rope you in for some kind of long-term consulting project where we we recraft the story of uh, Tsushima or something. You know, we're gonna we're gonna do this and, and, and intervene in the narrative with some like amazing <laughs> experimental game that's just gonna blow people's minds. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they could 
they can take it back to the next battles of Tsushima and kind of the, the Russo-Japanese war, Sino-Japanese you know war, that kind of period. It was, so, it was yeah. a low blow on my part, but when I, <laughs> when I saw in the game, uh, I think when you win, either when you beat it or at the intro credits, it says this is in honor of the fallen at the Battle of Tsushima. And I was like, you know, it's just weird because I know, I guess they're referring to the 1200s thing, but the one I know is the one that's part of that Russo-Japanese war, which is like mm -hmm. the birth of that like modern japanese imperial like entity so i'm like i wonder i i don't think that's what they mean but it would be really ironic if that is what they meant <laughs> mm. but, uh, yeah no that's a good question yeah. no i mean i think uh look i i think we, we probably should wrap up mm. um i i want to keep speaking for like five more hours to be honest because i have so many questions and i just feel like we could go in a million directions maybe we could find some excuse for a, a, a redux some sometime in the future but um thank you for for coming on it's been really enlightening thank you for listening to my like no. amateur like did you ever hear this book <laughs> um, no no th thanks a um, lot for uh, inviting me yeah i really yeah. appreciate it. and i think you know what, what we're trying to do here on this channel is like provide deeper perspectives you know if it's not really for folks who, who just want to play the game if you want to play the game great enjoy yourself but if you want to think deeper, that's kind of what we're we're tussling with here. And I hope this could be the beginning of more conversations like this. And yeah, just thank you so much. We're going to put, so can, do you have any recent stuff coming out or books or things that you want to point people towards? Um. Well, most recently, my, my uh, most recent book, which I co-authored with um, Professor Ron Zweigenberg at Penn State University, was on um, Japan's castles. Yes, the castles. Um, I'm sorry we didn't citadels. get to work that in. You know, I know you like the castles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I'm a big castle fan. I mean, not to disappoint people too much, but, you know, we focus on, on castles um, in the modern period. You know, what happens to Japanese castles mm -hmm. after, you know, the 1860s? Um, and that's something, and it's, it's also, you know, putting them into this kind of global context, looking at kind of European castles and, and like, you know, this global medievalism idea. So, um, kind of working on that at the moment and a few things to do with, with martial arts and, and medievalism. Cool. So Is there, yeah, keeping busy. Uh, and then you're, you have a site, right? That maybe we can point people to, is it? Oh yeah. It's just, uh, olegbenish.com. Okay. We'll put the so. link. We'll make sure to put the link below and. You know, if there's any other references or things you want me to throw in the description, I'll be doing that as well, just for some of the things that we talked about today. So okay, wonderful. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thanks, folks. And we'll see you hopefully again soon for the next second takes. Bye bye.